welcome to the Album Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Andy, Todd, and Tude. Hello, hello. It is the Album Nerds Podcast. That fellow was right. I'm Dude. I got Andy and Don with me. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. What's happening? Yeah, welcome to the podcast, everybody. Uh, if you're new here, we are three music nerds who love uh, kind of discovering new music and sharing it. Basically, what we do here is a album, listen and tell, pick out a record each based Ooh. on a topic, present it to the group, kind of get everybody's opinions, hopefully broaden some minds and, uh, you know, just bring a little bit of peace and love to the world through music is what we're all about here on the show. And the way we do that is uh, through the musical Wheel of Destiny. Ooh, yeah. Don't know what that is. You ever seen Wheel of Fortune? It's pretty much that. But instead of money on the wheel, we have musical topics, different artists, genres, things of interest. And we spun that wheel at the end of last episode, in case you didn't hear. And it ended up on a space entitled Live Aid Artists 1985. Be a part of the most important rock event ever staged. Live Aid. Saturday, July 13th. All right, so we're going to uh, present albums from artists who performed at the Live Aid Benefit Concert in July 1985. Uh, Live Aid was a, a giant televised event to fight famine in Ethiopia. It took place in two locations, London's Wembley Stadium and Philadelphia's JFK Stadium. Uh, it was organized by Bob Geldof uh, from the Boomtown Rats, uh, also star of the, the Wall film uh, from Pink Floyd, and uh, Midge Err, who was in Ultravox and Thin Lizzy and, and other bands. Uh, those two had had uh, assembled and written the the Band-Aid charity single, Do They Know It's Christmas, uh, which included artists from the UK and, and Ireland. And uh, of course, that paved the way for the USA for Africa project uh, that was put together by, I think, Michael Jackson and, and Quincy Jones. And so that was the, the We Are the World soundtrack. And so that, you know, eventually paved the way for this giant concert, uh, featured music's biggest acts at the time, or many of them anyway, from both sides of oh, the globe. Oh, man. I know. I, at the time, though, there were a lot missing. Yeah. You know, from, in my mind, I was like, hey, where's Prince? Where's Michael Jackson? Mm hmm. Yeah. Pretty much everybody else, then. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I, I think the rules for this were simply has to be an artist that performed there and the album had to come before Live Aid. Um, yeah, so we'll be uh, we'll be discussing uh, a record each. Uh, we also have our, our question of the week, which we'll discuss, uh, and then we will spin the, the wheel of musical destiny again. You choo-choo-choose me? Yeah, so for my Live Aid selection, going with one of the lesser represented genres in the uh, production, the Run DMC and their self-titled debut record, Run DMC, which came out in 1984. So the taste of their performance from the Live Aid event, well, Run DMC. Just for those who aren't aware, two MCs and a DJ got Joseph Simmons and Daryl McDaniels, who are Run and DMC. Nice. And then on the 
Wheels of Steel, you have Jason Mizell. The Wheels of Steel, ooh. Is that an insider term, being a DJ in the past? That's a DJ term there. Nice. That's how you know a DJ. Yeah. He was a DJ, um, provided the instrumentation. Yeah, I mean, this was pretty, a pretty big deal. I know, at least for me, at the time, this music was pretty revelatory. This record in particular was pretty influential in my musical upbringing. Uh, and I, the three words I used to describe this record in particular were groundbreaking, gritty, and great. Yeah, so why don't we jump in and play a little clip from, I believe this was the first single from the record. Right in the middle, this is entitled, It's Like That. Yeah, so Run DMC, in particular that song, was very influential on my early musical tastes. I actually found this song and one other Run DMC song on like a little mixtape randomly in our neighborhood when I was eight years old. Wow. <laughs> put this on the, on the boombox in my living room and it kind of, you know, it's cliche to say, but definitely did change my perspective on music. What's your guys' history with, with this group? Had you heard them before the Live Aid event? I, I doubt that I did. You know, I, I know at the time, um, and this is just based on my memory, so it, it could be flawed, but, you know, hip hop was sort of like, I was aware of it. You know, I, I think break dancing uh, or b-boying or whatever, it was represented in, in film. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the movie Break-In yeah. might have come out in 84. Break dance culture was getting captured in the, in the media and the news and stuff like that. But the music itself, I don't think had been commercially successful. And, and True. so, you know, I was aware of hip hop, but I probably was not aware of Run DMC uh, at this time. And it probably wasn't until the album with, with Walk This Way and UB Illin. Mm. Um, I, the name escapes me at the moment. Um, that's probably Raising, Raising Hell. Out. There it is. Uh, so that was probably the, when, when I first, uh, was aware of Run DMC. Yeah, that was kind of their big breakthrough there. That, oh, yeah. That record, in particular, the Aerosmith, uh, collab. Mm-hmm. Dude, I know you have a little bit of particular history. I knew this song. Uh, it was on one of my multiple KTEL or other mix like break dancing tapes I would get. The, I was like middle school age and I did some breaking and I loved the music that came with it. I didn't, like this song in particular was on one of the mixtapes and I I started grasping, you know, that it's like that and that's the way it is that, you know, other people live differently than I did. And that that's what Run DMC did well was bring that in. Now, the term sucker MCs was used quite a bit in this album and others. Yeah. And I would call people that. Not really completely clear on what an MC was. (laughs) 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 But anyone that was like a a punk was a sucker MC. I I know I had it wrong, but that's what I thought at the time. (laughs) The feeling was there, man. In the right place. (laughs) I mean, it was was bad. I I went to Breaking 2, opening night. Electric Boogaloo. Yeah, that's right. I had parachute pants. Fingerless oh gloves. <laughs> and I was in a, this was in a Midwestern town of like three or 4,000 people. So yeah. there was like, it was a tiny little theater and the, the 30 of us in the town that liked that kind of stuff were there. <laughs> and that was it. Nice. <laughs> Boy, to be a fly on the wall for that. Oh my gosh. Oh man. It was a great night. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. So a little background on this record in particular. Um, it's really like Donald's alluding to rap was not super commercially successful or really widely listened to across the US. Um, until this record came out, it was the first ever gold rap record. There were five singles that came off of it and it really paved the way for future generations of rappers to produce full length records. And before that, it was a lot of like just singles. And the content of the singles was generally more like kind of lighthearted, more like party based, mm-hmm. kind of just like let's jump around and have a good time type thing. Like Sugar Hill Gang? Yeah, Sugar Hill Gang. Um, the one that came to mind for me actually was Africa Bombada. It's kind of like probably one of the bigger hits from the early 80s here. I'm going to actually play a little clip from Planet Rock. Yeah, so the big change that MDMC brought to the table was they were cut out a lot of that extra. I could hear some like disco influence there in the African Bada sample in particular. They got rid of a lot of that and kept the beats really simple, hard hitting, mm-hmm. kind of clean, a lot of the drum machines, and then they integrated some guitar sounds in as well. Um, so why don't we play a little bit of clip just for contrast of the opening cut here. It's a little taste of Run DMC's Hard Times. Yeah, so definite change in production style there, a different approach yeah. to making this music. But I think looking back on this record, to me, the biggest difference between like hip hop nowadays and what this record sounds like was sort of this like sort of call response, like handoff verse type thing that they did yes. so well. Yes. Um, they're almost like one MC and just like two different voices. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's really impressive to hear, especially on a live performance at the concert when they're just going back and forth seamlessly you know even in between tracks like the little spoken words between the tracks is like perfectly handed off between each run and dmc i don't know would you guys have any uh any other thoughts about their kind of style and the overall impression that made on the musical landscape at the time well it was uh it was cool for me to to go back uh to this to this first album yeah I think I was under the mistaken impression that Rick Rubin, who had uh, produced Raising yes. Hell, I think I would have given him more credit for shaping the the Run DMC sound and that fusion of of rock and um, and, and hip hop. But I, I feel like that sound was was already here uh, on, on this record. Uh, I'm sure you know Rick Rubin probably took it a step further or something. But uh, I think the Run DMC was uh, sound was firmly in place uh, at this point. I think there uh, you're right, and I, I think that their contribution, their attitude was that we're going to invade this world of rock music. Like I really do believe that. I mean, the, on their second album, King of Rock. I mean, they were taking that and running with it from the beginning, and and uh, Run DMC laid down the bricks. And it's it's great. It was so fun to listen to. Uh, another cool thing, I guess, about this this era of of hip hop is uh, you know I see parallels with with punk rock 
you know, punk rock was a, sort of a, a, a rebellion against the, the progressive music at the time. Uh, and then all of a sudden you, you, you have guys that are just, um, you know, learning two chords or three chords. You know, anybody could do it. You know, there was nothing to it. With some of this early hip hop, it's, it's a drum machine and, and somebody scratching and a, and a couple of MCs. And so it, it had that, that simplicity, you know, that I think is, you know, a, a lot like uh, punk rock. With my breakdancing book, I had a giant poster. One side had breakdancing moves and the other side had how to scratch instructions. So, <laughs> Oh, cool. <laughs> All right, Andy. Well, thanks for bringing this one because I really do. I do think it's important. This did get millions of eyes and ears on music when they performed at Live Aid that I think was probably the first step to really becoming what they became. So. Word up, yeah. Uh, once again, yeah, if you haven't heard Run DMC's debut record, check it out. It's available on all the major streaming platforms. Excuse me, I'd like to ask you a few questions. Once again, it is question time here on the podcast. So please, after we ask it, those of you listening, please feel free to jump on socials, etc. and answer it as well. What's your favorite moment from the Live Aid event, gentlemen? Well, I didn't watch it in real time, but I did listen to all eight hours of the Wee. album. So um, there were a couple of cool moments. I really, I really enjoyed the Who's performance. I thought they were mm -hmm. awesome, always awesome. Um, but I think the thing that stood out to me the most is when Tina Turner came out to sing with Mick Jagger. Um, state of shock. And, yes. And you know what I'm talking about? Yep. You brought her out on stage just for that, that mm -hmm. one song, I believe. It was a pretty awesome duo. I never thought of them playing together before, but they're like wow. a match made in heaven. She did awesome on that song. I wish it, uh, the original was, uh, him and Michael Jackson. It was on the Jackson's album, but okay. I thought when I saw that, at the time, I re was really into Michael Jackson. And when I saw that live, I was pleased. Like, I thought she was the coolest. So, she is. How about you, Don? Well, so at the, you know, at the time I was a, I was a wee lad, uh, but I was really into, to Duran Duran at the time. They were really like my first, you know, musical love. So, you know, I was pretty much just uh, sitting in front of MTV all day waiting for Duran Duran to come on. Um, and, <laughs> Um, I mean, a lot of the whole day is kind of a blur, but yeah, you know, I, I guess, uh, probably Duran Duran performing was, was the highlight. Uh, if I were to watch it now, you know, I would probably say, you know, Queen, you know, that, that's now been captured on, you know, yeah. in a popular film. Um, but, you know, that would probably be the, a, a memorable moment. Um, but yeah, as a child, it was, it was Duran Duran. Weird. For me, it was more the event itself. I mean, I was middle school age, so I was into music ish my parents and i weren't at that time their taste wasn't that far off from mine like pop radio appealed to all of us so it was this family event where we had a cookout and we only watched the abc we didn't have cable so we watched the three hours the last three hours of it that were on abc mtv had it all day long and uh i just the phil collins stuff was really the highlight for me um mm. he performed at both venues in the same day flew the concord yep. from london <laughs> to yep. philly and played twice he played he also played with sting i forget at which location i think that was in london and then he played drums with, for filling in for led zeppelin since they didn't no longer had a drummer 
And there wasn't the best performance ever, but it was just at the time, I just thought it was so cool how much stuff he was doing. And he was like huge at that Super time. Popular. So he was probably the biggest yeah. star. Yeah. So at in that in those moments, I remember that the clearest, but having awesome cookout food and sitting around, being able to, we didn't get to watch TV while we ate normally. We ate in the kitchen. So we got to sit on the couch and eat. It was awesome. <laughs> I remember most was sitting on the couch and eating. <laughs> well, you know, you know how I love eating, but no, that was that was part of a thing being a special event, you know. Yeah, sure. Where up? So, uh, yeah, what were your memories from the Live Aid event? Love to know what your impressions were and what you remember. Leave us a note on the Elmers Discord, Elmers.com/discord, or hit us up on the socials. This is very special to us. It's just. It's about being able to live peacefully to let others live around you, which under the circumstances seems is quite appropriate to us. Okay, I, I think I, I gave it away already. <laughs> I, I'm going to be uh, uh, talking about an artist. They were uh, at their commercial peak at, at the time of, of Live Aid. Their contribution to the James Bond film, uh, A View to a Kill, I, I believe was number one on, on the charts during Live Aid. Uh, and of course, that's uh, I'm talking about Duran Duran. Uh, Live Aid was actually the last performance of the classic lineup uh, of the group for at least 50 15 years. Uh, so it, it marked kind of the, the end of, of an era for, for Duran Duran. Uh, but we're actually going to go back uh, a few years to, to May 1982 with uh, the album Rio. So why don't, I, why don't we do a, a clip here? Uh, this is the, the sixth cut on the album. I think the, the first, first song on side two. This is New Religion. Okay, so there's a, a little taste of the, uh, the Duran Duran sound. Uh, the three words I, I use to describe this album are art, funk, and rock. I say art because, you know, Duran Duran had this, uh, you know, the synth sound that was kind of atmospheric and, and spacey, but you've got the, the bass of John Taylor, uh, who's really, uh, I mean, he's really a funk bassist. Um, sometimes it's, you know, it's kind of buried uh, on the song, but you know, if you, if you isolate his bass, it's, uh, it sounds like, uh, chic. <laughs> and uh and rock because you have uh chic the the artist <laughs> uh the band yes. i call it, i call it chick because oh. i can't i just can't bring myself to say chic uh, I, i'm comfortable <laughs> doing that uh, <laughs> uh and so then you have the the rock uh and so that's you know andy taylor's uh guitar riffs yeah so um yeah what do you, what do you guys think uh think of this album these guys are gorgeous they are beautiful yeah oh that you know i, I I like this album. I, I've watched the classic albums um, documentary about it. What's fascinating is they're much more talented musicians than I think they were given credit for at the time. I thought of them as some, at that time, all the girls were saying how cute they were. So to me, it was like, yuck, I can't like that. I did like the radio singles, but this album is very good. The video productions that they did brought mtv and what was expected to another level and they accomplished a ton yeah and we just happened to and and but on new year's eve we do like a video roulette sort of at our house here the last few years because we haven't gone anywhere mm -hmm. and we just happened to play rio the video for that came up in our rotation so i've been kind of on the side listening to this record already so it was kind of 
it's kind of cool to have actually selected. So I'm a big fan. I really enjoy their sound quite a bit from this time period. Kind of like you were saying earlier, Don, I was really impressed by the guitar riffs in particular. They're really some tasty licks here throughout. You know, obviously you have the big electronic and the synth sound and stuff, but the little riffs are pretty good. Uh, well, let's uh, let's play another clip. Um, why don't I give you a, a taste of uh, John Taylor's funky bass here, um, here uh, in the middle of the song Rio. It's not often that uh, when there's a sax solo going on that bass can overtake it. That's a... Uh that's an accomplishment right <laughs> yeah. there. I like that. Yeah, and uh, unlike other new wave bands at the time, coming out of the post-punk <laughs> scene, uh, yeah, it had a lot of bass players that were were playing with a pick, and it was a more uh, aggressive kind of rocky style. Uh, you know, we we talked yeah. about the Cure and Joy Division before; they kind of had that sound. Uh, but John Taylor is different. You know, he was he was playing with his fingers, and you know, he was definitely influenced by the the, the funk bass players, like uh, is it Bernard Edwards? Uh, you know, people like that. You know, Duran Duran has kind of a, a unique vocal sound as well. So Simon Lebon has, a, um, you know, just his his own style. I, I don't even know how to describe it. There's kind of squeals and gasps in there somehow. Uh, and then the the production that's always on his vocals. It's it's usually multi tracked, and it sounds I don't know, sort of spacier or whatever. It it really mm-hmm. didn't sound like a- anybody else uh, at at the time. When I was a kid, uh, my sister would put me mm-hmm. on the phone with her friends. Because I could sing just like Simon LeBon. I think that was my... Wasn't that my story? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to take... <laughs> wasn't that my story? <laughs> you used to do that to me all the time. <laughs> yeah. That's one of my favorite things to do, folks. Uh, someone tells you a story. A few months later, tell it back to them as if it's you and see how they react. <laughs> <laughs> it either it either goes really well or really poorly. So, <laughs> um, so uh, w- with this album, you know the videos are, are shot in a, a tropical location. So I think people can maybe overrate the the brightness of the album. Uh, there are some dark moments, and why don't we play a clip? This is actually my my favorite track. Uh, the the final song on the album, uh, the chauffeur. This is a more experimental sound. Such a cool track, man. Something my favorite too. The same year, the album uh, Avalon by Roxy Music came out. Actually, I, I think it was the the same month. Uh, and going back, at, those are two albums I, I revisit a lot, and there, there's a lot of similarities uh, between those two albums. Both have sort of this exotic feel, sort of a, a tropical feel. Um, and uh, of course, I, you know, Roxy Music I think was a, a huge influence on, on Duran Duran. I think Duran Duran may have even inducted them at the uh, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Okay. Uh, any other thoughts on, on the album? It's uh it it it's a quintessential 80s album but in a good way. It's not tiresome. It's not over, you know, sometimes you think of stuff as being too 80s. It's not too 80s, it's just right 80s. Okay. So that was Rio by Duran Duran. And now a word from our sponsor, us. This is friendship. Pure unadulterated friendship. Oh, yeah. Hey there music fans, have we got something cool for you to check out. We just recently launched the Album Nerds Discord, which is a place where you can kind of hang out and uh, talk about music with some of your fellow 
Album Nerds. Just go to albumnerds.com slash discord. You can suggest topics for the show. Interact with the three of us. We're in there all the time. And, uh, you know, get some recommendations for some good music. It's a, it's a one-stop shop. Just go to albumnerds.com slash discord. So we've got a few thousand metal maniacs here today. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. We're going to get started on Another underrepresented genre at Live Aid was heavy metal. Judas Priest was the kind of the godfather of it all, in my opinion. So why don't we jump in and listen to a little bit of Screaming for Vengeance from the album Screaming for Vengeance that came out in July of 1982. All right, so that was a little Judas Priest screaming for vengeance. Uh, I described this album in three words: strong, chugging, and screaming. <laughs> for vengeance. <laughs> That's right. I'm not sure vengeance from what. Just a little background: Judas Priest, English heavy metal band, formed in 1969, sold 50 million copies of their albums, considered one of the greatest rock bands of all time. Uh, started off in that kind of Led Zeppelin-y blues rock. Way and then this was their eighth album where they had kind of established themselves as these heavy metal guys and the leather and the motorcycle and the whole thing. They kind of set the tone for what heavy metal would be or start off as and influenced a ton of bands. When listening to this album and all their albums or early stuff, more than anything, I hear other bands that came later in it. What do you, what do you guys think of the uh, Judas Priest experience? Well, I... I mean, this, when I think of heavy metal or, you know, specifically British heavy metal, it's, it's Judas Priest and it's Sabbath, um, maybe Deep Purple. Mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, this is the, this is that, that sound. If the aliens come and they ask me to, you know, provide them with a sample of, of what heavy metal is, I, I think I might, might choose this, this record. That's probably not the only sample they're going to take from me, buddy. <laughs> I don't know why it had to be an alien, by the way. I guess it could have, it could have been a, a, a person. <laughs> I'm glad it was. It's much more interesting. Well, you know, there is something otherworldly about about a lot of heavy metal, so that's why your your mind went there. Andy, what about it's you? True. Uh, I guess I just have the disadvantage of, you know, being a little bit younger and not being around at the time this was popular. Yeah. This for me, like I would, I would see the exact opposite from what Don just said. Like this does not sound like heavy metal to me at all. There's no low end for me. For me, like modern metal, so much about bass and drums, and this I just don't hear a lot of that on the record. So much about that yeah. Halford's high voice and the the squealing guitar, and it's just totally different take on the on the genre. Yes, you're right. I mean, it is simpler, but it got to be built upon. Uh, the Beatles started off with, I want to hold your hand. I'm not calling Judas Priest the Beatles by any <laughs> measure, but <laughs> right. it's the same kind of thing. You start somewhere and then the genre and subgenres mm-hmm. come. And this was the, this kind of kicked it off and set the tone, especially in the eighties, because metal was about rebellion and your ex hippie parents hating what you were listening to. And that's what Screaming for Vengeance at its core is about. I mean, the song itself is about being unjustly attacked or kicked while you're down. You get back up and you get some revenge against the people that screwed you, you know, and it's that kind of fight. It is what it is. I think 
some of the the absence of low end might also be the production. I mean, 80s production was just very treble heavy and mm-hmm. you know you you didn't really hear a lot of the the low end um you know even on dance records um you know really into the, the 90s but yeah i i think because i i think if you produced you know these judas priest albums now um i think they would really you know turn up that low end because it is there i mean it's it's that you know kind of like that throbbing aggressive bass and there are those power chords and so i i, I think a lot of it is is just the way it's produced yeah dude i i agree that's a good point technology is probably a factor in terms of uh what we're capable of with digital uh, recording and equipment changing gears let's get back to the songs so they had had a little commercial peak with british steel and and albums like that but i think uh Mm -hmm. mtv helped a lot the hit song off of this which i don't think the from what i read they didn't expect to be a hit song with the whole idea of um, the ideals, image, and attitude of the band and heavy metal at the time was, I'm going to crank it up, I'm going to do what I want, and if you think otherwise, you got another thing coming. That makes me want to pump my fist. Yes, but uh, some people say it should actually. The expression should be, "You got another think coming," because you, you often say, "You often say, you know, well, if you think this, then you've got another right. think coming." But okay, <laughs> I, I don't okay. know if that would have flowed very yeah. well. You got another think coming. <laughs> you got to pause there, you know. <laughs> 80s metal dude it all the production is all kind of similar to this quiet riot and all the stuff that came after this does have this sound they started the leather thing which i think is pretty much the most important uh piece i mean (laughs) yeah there's just a lot of that shared dna in in these in these rock bands I think Judas Priest really uh, influenced uh, a lot of the industrial that, that came afterwards. You know, groups like Nine Inch Nails and Ministry, mm-hmm. you know, they had that, that sort of driving um, feel to it. Uh, and of course, I, I think Metal of, of Britain in, in the 70s comes out of this yeah. like urban industrial setting. You know? Yes. Yeah. Hmm. They talked about, I read some articles and, and Rob Halford talked about how him and his buddies, you know, you'd on your way to school, you'd walk past all these plants where they were melting steel and metal and you'd have the smell in your pores and that they were heavy metal because they came from this environment that was dependent on <laughs> molten lava metal. real heavy metal yeah. interesting uh, another uh, interesting thing about judas priest and i'm not sure if they deserve the credit or not but they have you know two guitarists that seem almost interchangeable uh and i think mm-hmm. uh you know particularly like that that opening cut that's that's instrumental um there's like that two-part guitar harmony right so you've got one playing low and one playing high but you know uh, at the at the same time um like i'm not sure that became a, a staple of 80s rock yeah. um and i'm not sure where i heard it first i like hotel california you know the the end of that has a lot of that mm-hmm. um you know those guitar harmonies but um you know i don't know if judas priest is is the the band that that really established that sound let's play a couple seconds of hellion real quick that's the intro track There are those guitars that uh, Don was talking about. And the, the Hellion, I believe, is the bird 
on the cover of the album, which it's an awesome album cover. We've got that's a, a really cool album cover. I could definitely give him props for that. But yeah, the 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 guitar mini stuff definitely uh, part of the British heavy metal tradition. Iron Maiden has done great things with that as well, and a lot of the new uh, traditional heavy metal bands that I've enjoyed, uh, like Visigoth and others, have done. I've done a lot of that stuff yeah. too. Although I think you can probably achieve that sound with a, a pedal these days. <laughs> That's no fun. <laughs> Andy, any uh, additional thoughts on on Screaming for Vengeance? I mean, I know you didn't like their latest out in the 2018 album that much either, but it definitely has more low end. Yeah, I was, I, that was the one thing I was just thinking back on. I was like, I kind of liked Firepower more than Screaming for Vengeance, which I'm sure like Priest fans would be like, sacrilege, but... I, it's just my, I guess the time I was born and my general perspective on metal, it's a little different. Okay. So that was some of the bands that played at live aid and, and some of the albums that put them on the map and got them to the big stage. Hey, y'all got to let us know if you have any live aid favorites, if you watched it, if you've watched it on YouTube since you totally should. Uh, but that was Judas priest was screaming for vengeance. If you want to learn about metal, Start there. All right, boys and girls, you know what time it is now. Time to get up that old wheel and give her a spin. I'm your density. I mean, your destiny. Debut albums. Ooh. Mm, Wide open. But it's got to be a good one. Okay. Cool. So what are you listening to? Let us know. Join fellow album nerds on Discord at albumnerds.com slash Discord. You can email us at podcast at albumnerds.com or leave a voicemail at 585-210-2454. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at albumnerds. And if you'd like to support the show, do so via PayPal at albumnerds.com slash support or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, so we'll be back in a week with some more album recommendations for you. This time it's going to be some of our favorite debut albums. So we can't wait to talk to you in a week and you can check that out. Thanks for listening. See ya. That's all, folks. (laughs) (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Was that good enough? Was that 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 clean? That was great.